Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well. Greg here with another edition of See It or Shove It. I'm here again this week to give you my thoughts on the latest film releases. And also, Be Kind Rewind, we'll look at the film you voted for. And Binge It or Singe It discusses the creepy series You. Let's get started. Our featured movies this week include A Demonic Nun Coming Back for Revenge, a Greek family taking their shtick abroad to the homeland, and two teenagers finding forbidden love. First up, that demon nun Valak returns to torment sister Irene, but this time she's prepared to fight back. This is the nun too. This thing, it's come back for me. This demon was once an angel. Rejected by God. Stripped of power. It wants that power back. It's okay to be scared. I'm scared too. You send that thing back to hell. In the follow-up to the 2018 hit... The Nun 2 continues the journey of Sister Irene, played again by Thaisa Farmiga, and takes place five years after the events of the first film. Sister Irene acts as a sort of mentor to Deborah, a new nun who is questioning her faith, much to the dismay of the superiors at the nunnery. Deborah is played by Storm Reed. Irene finds out that the demon Valak has not been destroyed after all, and she is sent by the Vatican, along with Deborah, to investigate the demon and perform a miracle that will destroy her once and for all. Played once more by Bonnie Ahrens, Valak is torturing religious figures all throughout Europe, and Irene is led to a French boarding school to confront the nasty nun and send her back to hell. After arriving at the school, Irene is united with Maurice, played by Jonas Bloquet. Maurice is working as a handyman at the school, and his blossoming romance with the teacher is impeded when Valak takes over his body and controls his actions. Can Irene and Deborah intervene in time to save Maurice from further death and destruction? When I saw the trailer for this, I was trying to be optimistic and predicted it would be a see-it. And I give this film a... Shove it. I had such high hopes for this because the trailer made it seem like this was going to be terrifying. But again, so did the first one. I'm sorry, this nun needs to repent for the sin of not being very scary at all. Sure, the atmosphere was very creepy throughout, but the actual scares were almost non-existent, or they could be seen five miles away. Which then didn't make them very scary because I knew they were coming. Thaisa Farmiga is an actress who deserves better than these nun movies. And don't get me started on poor Storm Reed, an extremely capable actress who is good in everything and is completely wasted here. There were a couple scenes where the special effects were pretty impressive, especially the scene involving the magazines, which you could see in the trailer. But for the most part, this was on level with the first one, and I did not enjoy the first one at all. When I walked out of this one, I just thought, none. The name says it all, and what it says is the amount of films they should have made in this series. Not even a mid credit scene could save this movie. And that mid credit scene sets up for another installment, which I kind of hope 
isn't made for multiple reasons, one of which I can't get into without spoiling the credit scene, so I won't do that for those of you who do want to go out and see this. Just know to stay through half the credits. For everybody else who is on the fence of seeing this, I say skip it. Next, Academy Award nominee Nia Vardalis returns to write and direct the newest entry in the franchise that made her famous. This is my Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. I promised my dad I would find his best friends. I know them. Do they still live here? No. How do we find them? They will come for the reunion. Did they tell you they're coming? No. There's no other bedrooms. Family sleepover. <laughs> this is one reunion. never forget. Do you know these men? No. I am surprised, but I am not surprised because I'm never surprised. You lost me. Following the death of her father, Gus, Tula, played again by writer-director Nia Vardalis, is tasked with fulfilling his last wish, which was to gather members of the extended family in the motherland of Greece for a family reunion. When Tula and her husband, Ian, played by John Corbett, Along with her brother Nick, played by Louis Mandalore, arrive in Greece, they find a village that has lost all of its residents after the springs that controlled the water flow throughout town has stopped working properly. Determined to find her father's long-lost group of friends so that she can give them his life's journal of his time in America, Tula teams up with Victory, the self-proclaimed town mayor, to find the men who had long ago left the village. In between all of this... Tula's daughter Paris, played by Elena Campuris, is hiding a secret of her own regarding her education, while also being pursued romantically by Aristotle, played by Elias Kakavas. Aristotle went out on a date with her once before, but she ghosted him after she had doubts. However, Aunt Vula, played by the hilarious Andrea Martin, has a scheme up her sleeve when she invites Aristotle on the trip to act as her assistant. Can each of the family find a solution to all of their problems and salvage the trip of a lifetime? When I saw the trailer for this, I predicted it would be a shove-it. And I give this film a... Shove-it. I quite enjoyed the first My Big Fat Greek Wedding movie, but the second one wasn't so great. This one is on par with the second one. The writing in this one is atrocious, and it's hard to believe that Nia Vardalis, who received an Academy Award nomination for the first film script, is responsible for writing this one as well as directing it. Neither the script nor the directing are very good. The film just rushes from scene to scene to scene to scene, not giving you an opportunity to engage with the story at all. And then when it tries to hit some emotional moments later on, I feel the film didn't earn it. And there are just so many cliched and stereotypical aspects of this film that it just wasn't very funny. I think I may have laughed once, maybe twice throughout the whole film. With that said, there were several people in my showing who found the film to be quite funny based on their reactions. So I would say if you enjoyed the second film, you'll probably like this one. I did not. I think it's time that Vardalis moves on from this franchise. And I also think it's strange that she hit it so big in the first film and then really hasn't done much since then other than these Greek movies. Just something I wonder about. Hopefully this will be the final chapter of this franchise because it is rather uninspiring. Although it did inspire me to make a chicken souvlaki pita for dinner last night, but that's about as inspirational as it got.
Next, two teenage boys in the 80s wrestle with the thin line between friendship and romance. This is Aristotle and Dante discover the secrets of the universe. Hey, my name's Dante. Hey, my name's Aristotle. Everyone calls me Ari. Nice to meet you, Ari. I can teach you how to swim. I got you. Trust me. My parents want to prevent me from becoming my brother. Do you have a brother? He's in jail, so we don't talk about him. I met Dante. He's really sweet. Dante's my friend. There's something different about you. I like it. How are you celebrating the beginning of summer? In the film adaptation of the young adult novel of the same name, the film tells the story of two Texas boys in 1987 who meet at a community pool where Aristotle, played by Max Palayo, meets Dante, played by Reese Gonzalez. Dante offers Max swimming lessons, and the two begin an instant friendship, which is surprising because Aristotle tends to be standoffish with his peers. But something about Dante, whether it's his exuberance or just his overall joyful aura, leads Aristotle to maintain a close friendship with him. One summer, Dante informs Aristotle that he will be temporarily moving to Chicago where his father has a job teaching at the university. While there, Dante writes Aristotle countless letters that are at first innocent and fun, but then eventually begin to develop a more serious tone as Dante begins to define his sexuality, and with no one else to share this with, he puts it in his letters. Aristotle is taken aback by the letters as he believes he is straight and has shifted his focus to on learning how to drive as well as his job at a local burger joint. He develops feelings for a girl at school and begins questioning his parents' decision to not share details about his brother, who is currently in prison for an unknown crime. When Dante returns the following summer, time and space has put a bit of distance between the two, and when Dante convinces Aristotle to kiss him to experiment and see if kissing boys is really not his thing, Aristotle reacts angrily and risks losing his friendship with Dante altogether. But he knows he adores Dante just as much, but is afraid to explore those feelings. Can Aristotle come to terms with his authentic self without losing the one friendship that means more to him than any other? I give this film a... See it! This movie was so enjoyable to me. It is such a tender, well-executed story. The first thing that flashed across the screen said, to all of us who had to learn and play by different rules. This immediately spoke to me, as someone who grew up gay in the 1980s, having to have my hopes and dreams for my future internally defined by different rules. This film got it right in terms of the emotions a closeted person had at that time, while also seeing the media representation of gay people in the AIDS crisis and the shame and embarrassment that came along with that. Trust me, it was a horrible time to be gay. Not that it's a pleasure cruise to be gay down here in Florida currently, but I do think that that repression at the time and growing up in that atmosphere affected my life, even to this day. But no, whatever, this is a film review podcast, not a therapy session, so I'll spare you the details. Just know that the film addresses this masterfully. On a related note, thanks to anti-anxiety medication, I very rarely cry at films. But this one hit me so hard that I was almost downright bawling in the theater. The acting by everyone, from the two leads to supporting roles from Eva Longoria, as well as an unrecognizable Eugenio Derbez, 
was top-notch, and like I said, the script is just incredible. When the film was over, I was actually kind of sad because I wanted to know what happens next with these young men. But in doing some research, when I got home, I discovered that there was a second book in the series. While I don't think this one is going to be successful enough to merit a sequel, I'm going to look into reading the second book because I want to know what happens with these characters. And that's the greatest compliment I can give this film. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. One of the best things about having subscription programs to movie theaters is the ability to see films like this, ones that I would not have otherwise gone to see. This is a hidden gem that is in limited release, and if it is showing in your area and it sounds like something you would enjoy, I'd go see it. And that's it for this week's featured films. To recap, The Nun 2 is in theaters now and is a shove-it. My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3 is in theaters now and is a shove-it. And Aristotle and Dante Discover the Secrets of the Universe is in limited theaters now and is a see-it. And it is by far my pick of the week. I don't have any quick picks for you because I'm trying to save those all up for the weekend that Taylor Swift takes over movie theaters and there's nothing for me to go see. So, let's move on to the segment where I let you know the latest titles now available for home viewing. This is now streaming. Legendary icons Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin team up again in Moving On, a film about the lengths a woman goes to to get revenge. Despite that description, it is mostly a comedy, but does have some dramatic elements. I really enjoyed it, but to be honest, I would enjoy anything these two do. It is now available on Hulu, and to hear my full review, listen to episode 70. Pixar's latest treasure, Elemental, was a film that grew on me the more I watched it this summer. There are so many little Easter eggs hidden throughout that I caught with each viewing. It is a cute and underappreciated film and will be available to watch on Disney Plus beginning Wednesday, September 13th. To hear my full review of that, listen to episode 88. And if you do, though, just remember, every time I watched it, I liked it even more. Theater Camp is a mockumentary-style comedy starring Molly Gordon, Ben Platt, and Jimmy Tatro. It is aimed at a very specific audience, which is those well-versed in the goings-on in the theater world. I have some history in that area from college and rather enjoyed the film. If you aren't interested in theater or know people who are, you may not find it very funny. But you can judge for yourself when it hits Hulu later this week on Friday, September 15th, and you can hear my full review on episode 95. And finally, the big-budget action film Fast 10, the 10th entry in the Fast and Furious franchise, was a slight improvement on its predecessor, but was still your typical shoot-em-up and speed-your-car entry in the series. It was entertaining enough, but temper your expectations. It's coming to Peacock on Friday, September 15th, and you can hear my full review on episode 82. Now it's time to find out what film you voted for for this week's Be Kind, Rewind. Continuing my series where I take the 52-week movie challenge, this week's topic was my favorite film, and since I had just finished going over my favorites of the last 50 years in my summer miniseries, 50 Years, 50 Movies, I went back to before I was born and gave you the choices of The Wizard of Oz, Mary Poppins, and What's Up, Doc? You voted, and as of this recording, you chose The Wizard of Oz. Oh! 
Although 10 million copies of the book have reached eager hands and eager hearts, no one has dared the towering task of giving life and reality to the land of Oz and its people. Every delightful character of L. Frank Baum's classic is now reborn. Every glorious adventure has been recaptured and painted with a rainbow. The celebration in Munchkinland, the flying monkeys, the rescue of Dorothy, the castle of the witch, the palace of Oz, and Dorothy's strange journey to the Emerald City to find the wonderful Wizard of Oz. In the classic 1939 film, Academy Award-nominated actress Judy Garland plays Dorothy Gale, a young farm girl from Kansas who is trying to find her place in the world while living with her Aunt Em and Uncle Henry. The one thing in her life that she loves more than anything is her dog, Toto. One day, Toto is taken away by the nasty Miss Gulch, played by Margaret Hamilton, who claims Toto had bitten her. Distraught, Dorothy runs away before being reunited with Toto, who had escaped Gulch's clutches. Soon, a tornado hits, and Dorothy and Toto are swept away to the Land of Oz, where they meet a scarecrow, played by Ray Bolger, a tin man, played by Jack Haley, and a cowardly lion, played by Bert Lahr. And the four of them travel to Oz to meet the wizard, who can help each receive the one thing they need. Dorothy needs to return home, the scarecrow needs to get a brain, the tin man needs to get a heart, and the cowardly lion wants to receive courage. In order to get their wishes granted, the wizard, played by Frank Morgan, instructs them to bring him the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West, also played by Margaret Hamilton. The witch has been tormenting them as they journey down the yellow brick road, and they know they are no match for that evil woman, but nevertheless they go on their way to complete their mission. The Wizard of Oz was released on August 25, 1939, which is exactly three years before my mother was born. And it's based on L. Frank Baum's classic novel, and while it is now considered one of the gold standard classic films of all time, it wasn't a success upon its release only earning just under $3 million during its initial run. With a high production cost as well as marketing and promotion, the film lost the studio $1.1 million. And in 1939, you can only imagine what that is equal to today. However, decades later, the film would be an annual staple on television where it would get a traditional Christmas airing, eventually becoming the classic family film it is today. Well, as a viewer, you may think this was a joyful film to make, but au contraire, mon frere, the set was almost like a death trap, with mishap after mishap. Jack Haley was once asked if the production was so much fun to do, to which he responded, quote, It was not fun. Like hell it was fun. It was a lot of work, and it was not fun at all. Some of the more memorable mishaps were when Margaret Hamilton sustained second and third degree burns on her hands and face after the fire from her first departure from Munchkinland caused her makeup to heat up and burn her face after her cape got caught on the platform. It was later discovered that one of the main components of her green makeup was copper, causing that toxic reaction to the flames. Actor Buddy Ebsen was originally cast as the Tin Man, but had to be replaced well into filming after the aluminum dust from his makeup caused such a toxic reaction that he had to be put in an iron lung. You can find lost footage of some of his performances on YouTube. As a longtime fan of the novels, Hamilton was so happy to be considered for a role in the film, and when she found out producers were thinking of casting her, she asked her agent what role she was up for, to which he responded, the witch, who else? 
While her iconic performance was so effective that many of her scenes had to be cut from the film due to it being deemed too scary for young children, the actress had a reputation as being the polar opposite and bonded well with Garland on set. In fact, she was such a nice woman to her that Garland found it very difficult to be afraid of her when in character. One of the most memorable things about the film is its soundtrack, highlighted by the iconic song Over the Rainbow. However, the song, which was ranked as the number one greatest film song by the American Film Institute in 2004, it was almost cut from the film entirely because the studio, MGM, felt the scene where Garland sings it went on too long and suggested trimming it by removing the song. Garland's daughter, Lorna Luft, has said in interviews that her mother was deeply disappointed in the film after its release because it had been considered a financial disappointment at the box office. But Over the Rainbow became her signature song during her live performances throughout her life. The film did manage to receive five Academy Award nominations, winning two for Best Song for Over the Rainbow and Best Score, while also being nominated for Outstanding Production, which today is called Best Picture, as well as nominations for its art direction and special effects. I mean, that tornado scene was very innovative for its time. Garland also won the Non-Competitive Academy Juvenile Award for her performance. That is not an award they give away today. Rather, they just think anybody at any age can compete for an Oscar in one of its main categories. Oh, one last thing. Terry the dog, who played Toto, was paid $125 a week for her work. That is equivalent to $2,750 a week today. You mean to tell me that bitch got paid more than I do? I need to find work as a dog instead of working like a dog. The Wizard of Oz is available to stream on Max. Next week's Be Kind Rewind topic is a film featuring a natural disaster. Your choices are Twister, The Poseidon Adventure, and Armageddon. Come to my Instagram at theatershoveit to vote for which film I should focus on. The post with the most likes will be next week's segment. Now it's time for the return of Binge It or Singe It. When a highly intelligent bookstore manager becomes infatuated with an aspiring writer, an obsession begins. This is you. Well, hello there. Who are you? Everyone just calls me Beth. And there you were. Every account set to public. You want to be seen, heard, known. Of course, I obliged. I believe in love at first sight. But love is tricky. Is this Joseph? Can we get real for a second? You have questionable taste in friends. I'm going to help you get the life you deserve. Based on Caroline Kepnes' best-selling novel, You follows Joe Goldberg, played by Penn Badgley. Joe is the manager of a bookstore who meets Guinevere Beck, a writer played by Elizabeth Lale. Joe quickly becomes obsessed with her and begins tracking her every move and going to any length to prevent any obstacles to their romance. He stops at nothing, including murder. This includes her friends and ex-boyfriends. Throughout its current four-season run, Joe finds a new obsession with each passing season. 
Season 2 finds Joe moving from New York to Los Angeles in an attempt to escape his past and start over. He soon finds himself falling into his old habits as he meets a new obsession, but in this season, Joe may have met his match. It is a storyline that carries over into the third season, where infatuations begin boiling over from all ends. In its current fourth season, Joe tries to escape reality by moving to London and changing his name to Jonathan Moore, working as an English professor. He enjoys his new life free of the drama of the past, that is, until the tables are turned on him and he is blackmailed for a crime he may or may not have committed. Throughout its run, Yu has maintained its creepy atmosphere, especially Badgley, who is terrifically sinister as Joe. The first season aired on Lifetime, and the network ordered a second season before the first episode aired on September 18th. However, with low ratings on the cable network, Lifetime backed out of the airing the drama's second season, and Netflix picked up the series and began streaming it in December of 2018. I really enjoyed the first three seasons and found them to be mysterious and sinister, and I recommend them for a nice binge over a few weekends, especially with Halloween coming up. However, something seemed off with the current fourth season. I appreciate the writer's efforts to switch things up because, let's face it, how many times can Joe do what he does to women without getting caught? But I just didn't find the fourth season to be as interesting as the other three, especially that first season. My god, if you're only going to watch one season, watch the first one. The series will be returning for a fifth and final season once things go back into production following the strikes. I am hopeful it will return to its roots and give Joe the send-off he deserves. Fingers crossed. You can be streamed on Netflix. It's that time where we have to wrap up this week's episode of Cedar Shove It. Thank you so much for listening this week and taking the time out of your day to support my podcast. While you're at it, support your local theaters by going to see some of the movies I reviewed this month. And share my podcast with your movie and TV-loving friends and family. Don't forget, you can email me at cedarshoveit at gmail.com and follow me on Instagram and letterboxd at cedarshoveit and rate me wherever you get your podcasts. Come back next week to hear my thoughts on all the new releases, including Kenneth Branagh's latest Agatha Christie adaptation, A Haunting in Venice. Ooh, that looks good. I can't wait to see it. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great week. This episode of See It or Shove It was recorded in Orlando, Florida, and is produced by Gregory G. Productions. Music by Mysterio Music. All rights reserved. 